It's Monday, March the 15th, 2021. More than 360 million vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccination story as it happens. We'll look at how vaccines are made, the challenges of distributing them, and the impact of all of that on public health and global geopolitics. Today, we're looking at how individual behaviour might change as vaccines spread and governments loosen lockdowns. Natasha, hello. How are you today? Hey, I'm good, thanks. I'm great. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, What have you been thinking about this week? Oh, well, I've been thinking a lot about vaccine exports. Uh, We've been hearing about how the EU has stopped some vaccine exports. And everyone gets really excited about this sort of vaccine nationalism and, you know, for good reason, perhaps. But what troubles me is not so much the vaccines themselves, but also the sort of doodads underneath whether it's your bio bags or your filters or your tubing or your sterilisation equipment. And these are the things that we need to make vaccines. And they're kind of important and people don't think about them enough. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about them lots on this podcast. Um, In a moment, we'll hear from the husband and wife team behind the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine, the one that changed the doom-laden 2020 narrative of the pandemic. Joining us for our discussions this week is Edward Carr. He's the deputy editor at The Economist, and he also oversees the paper's COVID coverage. Ed, hello. Hi, Alok. Hi, Natasha. How are you doing? Tell us, Ed, what do you think are the biggest challenges that governments face in opening countries back up as the number of vaccinated people starts to increase? Well, I was really struck by how Joe Biden set it out when he made his first sort of primetime news conference. And you got the sense there that governments are really juggling the process of opening up, which they want to do as quickly as possible, with the risk of disease coming out again. And then just the sheer sort of administrative difficulty of arranging and choreographing both of these things. I think it's pretty tough. But you can see from Biden's speech that he's kind of impatient and wants to get it done. I mean, he wants everything to be opened up by Independence Day, July the 4th. Independence from, to celebrate independence of the country, but also independence from the virus. I thought it was quite a nice line. Yeah, and, you know, in Britain, it's June the 21st, which is, you know, midsummer. I mean, there, there's going to be a lot of branding, right? We're going to be branding this because it's partly about the messaging and convincing people that it's a good time. So I think that makes sense. Meanwhile, over in Europe, several countries seem to have paused their rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine. So Ireland, Italy, Denmark, the Netherlands, Germany, France, they've all stopped giving it out for now. Natasha, what should we make of all of this? Well, we should be glad that there is good vigilance for adverse events. But I think we should probably wait to draw judgment on what's going on because safety is just so important that kind of like whenever you see 
odd events cropping up when you're doing vaccinations, you kind of take note of them. And, you know, we've seen people die after vaccines uh, like Pfizer's vaccine and Moderna's vaccine. Then you look into them and you say, OK, that's fine. It's not related to the vaccine or these people were very frail and there's not a problem here. So I think what we're seeing with the clots is a bit of a mystery because everything we know about the vaccine so far, the AstraZeneca vaccine, is that clots are not really the sort of side effect you would expect from this vaccine. We didn't see that in the trials. We've closely uh, looked at the rollout in Britain of over 11 million people. We're not seeing a higher level of clotting. So that's all a bit of a mystery. But the, the context here is that when you vaccinate millions of people, the kind of normal things that happen to people still continue to go on. People continue to have heart attacks. They continue to walk in front of buses and they continue to have blood clots. And so what you have to do statistically is look and see whether there's a difference. And I guess that's what's going on in some of these countries. Well, it's something to keep an eye on. We're not going to get any answers immediately, are we? Thanks both. As vaccines roll out around the world, people are starting to win back some of their freedoms. In the past week, the American Centers for Disease Control issued guidance that people who've been fully vaccinated can meet each other indoors without social distancing or masks. And since February, vaccinated Israelis have been able to download an app that shows their vaccination status. They use that status to get into places such as gyms, theatres and bars. The glimpse of freedoms like this returning started in no small part thanks to the work of two people, Uga Sahin and Özlem Türeci. They are the husband and wife owners of the German company BioNTech, which invented the first COVID vaccine to get regulatory approval for use. Natasha, you've been spending some time with the couple, haven't you? Uh, And as is traditional for these times, you've been spending it on Zoom. Yes, Um, and they were fabulous to talk to. They met as trainee doctors on a blood cancer ward in Germany in the 1990s. They're both of Turkish descent. And they had this kind of shared idea of how to tackle cancer. So in 2001, they founded a biotech firm which developed drugs to treat it. They're quite a dedicated couple. They've worked hard on their science throughout their life. In fact, on their wedding day, they went right back to the lab after their ceremony. And right before the pandemic started, they were very focused on using a very novel technology, mRNA, which of course everyone now knows. And they were using it to develop cancer vaccines. They had realised that it had potential as a a pandemic vaccine tool. So, of course, when the pandemic happened, they leapt on it. And I I guess the rest is kind of history. Yes, give give us a second. We just just, uh, need to open the door for... uh, We ordered ordered something to eat. And And I caught up with them recently over a midweek takeaway. We started with 20 candidates and invested time into diligent analysis of the candidates in the preclinical setting and did also a larger clinical trial, not only with one candidate, but with four candidates. And uh, what we also did is uh, we did everything in-house. That means we evaluated immune responses in-house. And the third advantage is, is of course, that with Pfizer, we have a partner who is skilled in doing large clinical trials in an extremely efficient and fast fashion. Tell us what your thinking is about the variants and when you need to make a decision about making a booster shot. 
Yeah, so first of all, what we believe is important is to bring us in the position to change a vaccine when it is needed. Yeah. So the first step is not changing the vaccine, but putting the process into place to enable us to change the vaccine. That's the first thing to come. And the second? Yes, and, and the second is the decision point when we need indeed a new vaccine. And here it is very important to get an understanding of the uh, uh, breadth of protection of a vaccine we have right now. What we know is uh, that our uh, vaccine induces a polyspecific immune response, which means that it's not so easy to escape the multi-pronged, multi-effector immune response we can generate. We also know that the current variants, for example, the UK variant, are not escapes from our vaccine. So this is also one of the important topics to make sure that the breadth of protection is broad, which we think we have with our vaccine, and to monitor which emerging variant might escape it. And tell me, what are you looking for to help you make that decision? As you track these variants yourself, what is going to be the thing that makes you go, aha, we need to, we need to do something now? So we have to combine information. So we have on the one side laboratory data, for example, the neutralization experiments, and we have done neutralization experiments for more than 25 variants, and most of the variants show good equal neutralization. There is one variant, the South African variant, which shows somehow reduced neutralization, but we still believe it is a good neutralization. And the second, uh, which is more important, is real-world data about protection and breakthrough infections. That means if we see in vaccinated people still infections coming up with a higher rate than we would expect. And, and this data are missing at the moment. We're starting to get results from countries that are actually using the vaccine. What is this real-world data telling you as vaccine makers that you couldn't get from your trials? The real-world data is very important because it shows how under the conditions which are normal for community life, our vaccine performs. And uh, it gives us additional information. For example, subsets of the population we have not covered broadly in our clinical trial, like, for example, hemodialysis patients, cancer patients, and so on, are immunized and we get back data on them. And the most recent data from Israel, for example, was very exciting because on the one hand, this data confirmed our efficacy against symptomatic disease, which we have already reported from our trial. It also gave the first indications of protection and prevention of infection, which is also a very important piece of information, which is not so easy to get with this robustness from a clinical trial. The data is telling us that regardless of the health condition of the individuals, we see always the same kind of efficacy in the range of 90 to 95%, which is, of course, very encouraging. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you, you, Natasha. Natasha.
Ed, th- th- these two have, uh, are amongst many who've, as we said earlier, started to turn the tide with the pandemic. And we're getting to the stage now where if we zoom out, vaccinations are spreading across the world. And we're starting to get some options now in terms of returning our freedoms. Can you just give us a picture of what that looks like? Well, I think the country to look at is Israel, where vaccination is pretty much getting on to running its course. And you can see there that life is beginning to return to normal, albeit with some tools like vaccine passports that that have been used. And I thought it was significant this week that the Centres for Disease Control and Prevention issued their first of what will be many bits of guidance as to how vaccinated people can start to assume their freedoms. And interestingly, that that kind of runs up against the kind of impatience we've seen from states like Texas, uh, where vaccination hasn't proceeded that far, but like (laughs) they've thrown open all the restraints and, and said life can return to normal. So you have, I think, quite a complex picture and some countries, some states and some bits of countries will be getting ahead of themselves. And we may see upticks in the levels of cases and admissions to hospital. Certainly that's what the modelling suggests. I think we're at a really delicate and interesting sort of moment. And country after country, as vaccination programmes proceed, will pass through this very delicate phase. Israel's coming out the other side. Britain's right in there now, as is the United States. Most of continental Europe will follow. Uh, it's interesting that the, the, the story seems to be that perhaps the national level blanket policies of locking every single thing down, stopping you from leaving your home, perhaps those fingers crossed are behind us and the vaccinations are giving us a much more sophisticated way of dealing with infections and allowing people to sort of take more responsibility for their own sort of actions. Natasha, can I ask you, what did you make of the American CDC's guidance for vaccinated individuals. The, 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 just to remind everyone, this is the idea that they've said to people who've been fully vaccinated, you can meet indoors without masks, but that you should continue wearing masks in public places. People who have been vaccinated, they want to know when they can kiss their grandchildren. They want to know when they can do normal things. And so it's, it's really useful to have advice. The United States is a really big country, though, and so what slightly troubles me is that while some of this advice may be perfectly good in um, a state with very low incidence, a state with high incidence, it's somewhat different, isn't it? If you've been vaccinated and the guidance says you can meet an unvaccinated person who's at low risk, not defined, um, inside your home. What are the risks there? That's going to depend, at least in part, on what the incidence is. On the one hand, I do think it's really important for governments to start setting out what the guidelines probably should be, because people do need guidance. But on the other hand, in this delicate stage, there's going to be quite a few uncertainties. And I think the really interesting thing for me is we need to step back and remember what a weird year it's been. You know, most illnesses, people take kind of responsibility for themselves. They have a sense of the risks and they have a sense of of what they want to expose themselves to. And generally, obviously there are public health policies, but generally people take responsibility for themselves. We've been living in a year when for weeks and weeks at a time, Our own governments have locked us in our houses and told us we can go out to take a little bit of exercise and to buy a loaf of bread. That's remarkable. And going from that 
scenario to one in which we go back to normal and we're once again deciding what we do when is bound to be complex. Unless you do it all in one go, which, which as I said, model suggests is quite risky, it's bound to be difficult. I think it's all very well to reframe the discussion, but I don't think it's true that with most infections, let's say most infections, you know, people will take responsibility for themselves. That's not always the case by any means. If you have an outbreak of Ebola, you want the government to do something about it. That's why we have public health departments to look at public health. That's why the state has stepped in in this way. That's why we've been deprived of some of our liberties. But of course, now we're at that point, aren't we, Ed, where the kind of me from the public health perspective and you from your sort of perch as a sort of well defending the freedom and liberties of humans, we're kind of having this sort of intellectual tussle. Do we go back to that time when we say, no, you know, liberty comes first and individual responsibility. And I'm kind of like, well, you know, but public health and this is it, right? This is this is the discussion. The way I'd frame it is this, that we're going from an epidemic to an endemic disease. And at the end of this, I expect this disease to be still circulating around and something that we have to live with. And as you make that transition from an epidemic where special rules apply, and I, I totally agree with Natasha that you needed to have special rules, to an endemic one where we kind of live with it, you're going to have a corresponding shift from sort of blanket rules that apply to everybody to one in which individuals make their choice. And it's that transition that corresponds to the transition from an epidemic to an endemic disease. Natasha, Ed, thanks very much. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, you'll need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejabpod. A story I found interesting this week was in the Asia section. It looks at the conundrum of India. There have been many fewer deaths than you might expect for a country that's so big and has so many people. Uh, Could it be the underreporting of cases? Well, that seems unlikely. It actually seems that across the board, people who've been infected in India, including the elderly, have had an unusually high chance of survival. To get The Economist, go to economist.com slash thejabpod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. One way to start opening societies up is to allow those who've been vaccinated to go back into the world, to meet in restaurants, work in offices or work out in gyms. To identify those people, they need certificates to indicate their positive vaccination status. America, Britain and the EU are all studying how such vaccine passports might work. This week, the European Commission will put forward plans for an EU-wide digital green pass. Germany has been noticeably slow with its vaccine rollout. But even there, there's hope that vaccine passports might be available by the summer. Well, we've been um, living under a hard lockdown since mid-December, so it's, it's been a while. Wendelin von Bredau is The Economist's European correspondent, and she's based in Berlin. A hard lockdown entails the closure of all non-essential shops, the closure of schools and kindergartens, although they've now been reopened just sort of last week. So it's it's been a long, hard lockdown that's slowly being relaxed at the moment, but very cautiously, and they're taking baby steps. On the corollary of that, how is the vaccination project going? 
I think people are very frustrated here. You know, Germans are sort of used to be first in class and being very efficient. And they feel, well, after all, the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine was in, invented in Germany and we should be the champions. We should be <laughs> the, the, the top vaccinators in the world. And that's obviously not the case. Many here blame the decision by Angela Merkel and Jens Spahn, the health minister, to do all this within the EU framework and not go it alone, which I actually do think was probably, even though it really slowed down things, just for its symbolism, probably the right thing to do. The hope is that now, at the end of March and in April, it will speed up a lot because they will allow both uh, GPs and company doctors to vaccinate staff or, or just patients. Because at the moment, there are 400 vaccination centers in, in a fairly big country. So you can imagine it's not particularly fast at the moment. The question then falls on what can vaccinated people do? What is it that, uh, what kinds of bits of the economy start to be able to be opened up? And I just wonder if you could tell us how vaccine passports um, and similar measures fit into the plan. So there was a YouGov um, survey just recently at the end of February, and it found that 60% of Germans are in favour of either an immediate introduction of a green passport or one distributed once everyone has been offered a jab. And so um, 16% would like it immediately, you know, they say, well, we can't wait. And the others say, well, it's actually not really fair. So the other 44 think it should wait until everyone in Germany has been offered vaccination. And Angela Merkel, so the chancellor, falls into that second category. She thinks it's a good idea, the vaccination passport, but it should only be done once everyone had the chance to get vaccinated. Angela Merkel's stance seems to be very fair, um, but also means that you'd have to wait longer before you can start using them to do what they're supposed to do, which is hopefully open up bits of the economy. I mean, th th is there some tension there? Yes, because you, you probably know that the Germans are the <laughs> travel champions in Europe and they love their summer holidays. And so everybody's sort of more or less accepting that there won't be much of an Easter holiday, but they really want their summer holiday and they want to go abroad. At the same time, at the moment, the government is saying that, that all Germans will be given an opportunity to re receive the vaccine by September 21st this year. So that's sort of after the summer. <laughs> so um, there's a big debate on whether to introduce the passports before September, you know, to basically save the summer holiday. Ed, can I come to you first? Just so we're clear, how would vaccine passports actually work? So there are lots of ways of building the software, if you like, for these things. But the principle is very simple, that if you've been vaccinated, you have proof of vaccination, and that gets you into various countries or venues within a country uh, to be defined. But sort of how you do it does have a big effect on things like privacy, what personal medical information you might be sharing, the potential for this to become the first of a sort of general right for the state to start to interfere in, in your or know about your health status in various ways. So it, it's both the kind of the principles beguilingly simple, but so how you do it has some really quite big implications, I think. There are clear advantages to having something like this, uh, you know, opening up businesses, allowing people to be a bit more free. That all sounds great. But 
the disadvantages are also quite evident too. I mean, do, do you risk creating a society where some people are able to do things and some people aren't just because they've not been given the opportunity to have be vaccinated, the jabs versus the jab nots? The more I've thought about vaccine passports, the less I've been convinced that they're really particularly useful domestically. I mean, if you think about vaccine passports at the two extremes, one when nobody's been vaccinated and the other when everybody who wants a vaccine has had, had access to one. When nobody's been vaccinated, obviously vaccine passports aren't really worth very much to anybody. But if you think of the other extreme that Wendelin was talking about when, uh, say, that Angela Merkel wants to have, when everybody who would like to have a vaccine has had one, who then are you protecting? Uh, well, there are a number of categories. You're protecting people who can't be vaccinated for some reason. You're protecting people who have been vaccinated, but because no vaccine's perfect, they might be in infected. And that's a small group, I think, of particularly vulnerable people. And you're protecting those who, for some reason, choose not to be vaccinated. Well, if you think of the big edifice of a vaccine passport at home allowing you I don't know, onto public transport or whether you can go to the office. That's quite an infringement on people's sort of freedom to, to move around for what I think is a pretty small gain. For me, uh, Natasha may disagree, but I think for, for me, by the time vaccine programmes are on their course, a vaccine passport system is a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Uh, they're really useful when only a few people have been vaccinated in that sort of interim period. And that lasts a few months. I think internationally is very different from domestically. I think internationally they could be used for years. With regards to Ed's point about everyone being vaccinated, they're not being much use for them. I mean, that does assume that everyone will be vaccinated. And uh, in some countries, it may be that lots of people don't want to get vaccinated. Also, there are some situations where you domestically you might want them. So, for example, in care homes, you might want to make sure everyone's been vaccinated. And then I can also see situations where people might like to advertise their vaccination status to provide personal services, whether it's, you know, bikini waxing or minicabs, right, taxi drivers. As governments start to loosen lockdowns, making informed decisions about how to manage the risk of getting COVID-19 will fall increasingly to individuals. COVID-19 threatens everyone, but its highest risks are concentrated amongst particular groups. It's well known, for example, that older and sicker people face more danger than younger, healthier ones. Men are at higher risk of severe illness and death than women. But how do all these risks relate to each other? And how do any other illnesses a person has, so-called comorbidities, affect their chances of surviving a COVID-19 infection? The Economist's data team has built a tool to investigate exactly those questions. I am Dan Rosenhack. I am the data editor at The Economist, and I oversaw the development of our new and exciting COVID-19 risk estimator. Dan's been telling me how the risk estimator works. The COVID-19 risk estimator tells you for any given set of age, sex, and 29 different underlying medical conditions, the share of people that our model expects would die or be hospitalized if they were diagnosed with COVID-19. 
And how did you go about building it? We were very fortunate to gain access to a really remarkable data set. It's called the COVID-19 Research Database, and it contains the essential information, so age, sex, and comorbidities, about 425,000 people in the U.S. who were diagnosed with COVID-19 between May and December of 2020. And we used a machine learning algorithm that we applied to that data in order to get a model that could predict hospitalization and death rates for groups of people with the specified characteristics. And then you can use the machine learning algorithm to predict, essentially, or or give you a sense of a prediction for a hypothetical person. Correct. Um, And so then just take us through what you can do with that. The the risk estimator is, is presented as a tool. And so how does the person use it? So you go to our website, economist.com slash COVID risk, and then you scroll down a little bit until you see our interactive risk estimator tool, where you choose a list of medical conditions, comorbidities as they're called, from the 29 that our model is programmed to handle. And then you will see charts for the expected hospitalization and death rates for people with that combination of comorbidities by age and sex. And the differences are enormous. You know, you can go from basically a 0% risk of death for young, healthy people up to significantly double-digit risks for older, sicker people. I wonder, are there some any surprises, anything that surprised you in terms of things that we perhaps hadn't suspected? There were a few things we found surprising, yes. Probably surprising more than shocking, but in a way that's encouraging because if what our data set had shown was were completely different to everything we thought we knew about the disease, then it would probably be a problem with our data. Yeah, that would be, um, be a different type of problem, right? <laughs> exactly. So um, I was surprised by a few things. Um, for the death curve, I was surprised at how much more age mattered than comorbidities do. Our model shows that when it comes to just the base question of whether or not you will survive, it is better to be young and sick than to be old and healthy by like a margin. Conversely, for hospitalization risk, comorbidities are surprisingly important. You can easily get up to 20, 30 percent hospitalization risks, even in fairly young people in their 30s or even their 20s with only a couple of comorbidities. Uh, I guess finally, the third thing I would say that I found surprising was, although it's somewhat well known now that in severe cases of COVID-19, many of the most prevalent symptoms are cardiovascular rather than respiratory. And we just found that, sure enough, breathing-related comorbidities like asthma and COPD were not huge predictors of the risks of hospitalization and death, at least not relative to conditions that are either cardiovascular or circulatory. Chronic kidney disease and liver disease are really bad. Heart disease is bad. Diabetes is bad. This isn't shocking if we know that the disease attacks these body symptoms. It shouldn't be that surprising that people who have those systems already weakened by another condition would be particularly susceptible to COVID-19, but this really does bear that out.
I think the one thing for me that the risk estimator shows is just how much more we still have to learn about what this disease actually is. Um, we've only been studying it for 12 months or just a little bit more. So it's really early days. Natasha, what, what did you take away from, uh, from this data set? One of the first things that I did was I wanted to look at the relative risks for uh, people with the same profile as members of my family. OK, so it's not an individual risk calculator, but it can tell you, OK, someone who is my mother's age, you know, what is her risk? What's my husband's risk? What's my risk? And although it's not a personal risk calculator, I can set those risks kind of in context to my life and know kind of like that my husband is at much more risk than I am actually because he's male more than because of anything else, which is actually was one of the big take homes for me was just how much maleness does actually add to the hospitalisation and death. And then, you know, just on an individual diseases, I would say it was interesting to see type one diabetics have a lower risk than type two. And it was also useful to start unpicking the different cancers as well, because we talk about cancer being a risk factor for COVID-19. Well, there's lots of different types of cancers and some of them are in this data set. Ed, how about you? What did you take take away from the data set? Well, I think Natasha's completely right. I had to sort of fiddle around with it and uh, and it was it was really surprising and illuminating. I suppose that the single thing that really struck me was there's a, on every chart there's this line going across at just about 2%, which is the case fatality rate, which is kind of what we've been taught to think of, you know, after all this time as basically the number of people that the proportion of people that COVID-19 kills. Well, goodness me, you start unpacking that number and it's it's all over the place. I mean, you get up to really high proportions with elderly people. And then if you start adding comorbidities, it gets up to frightening proportions. So this it's just how, I guess, how the 2% number doesn't really tell you very much at all. Because when you start unpacking it, you get you get just a whole kingdom of, of information. Natasha said that this data set is not about working out an individual's risk of, of death or hospitalisation. The data is based on American hospital records, so it's a particular set of uh, conditions in a specific set of people. But having said that, it's a start, isn't it, Ed, in in that sort of transition to personal responsibility. If you want to understand a little bit more about how to manage your own risk as governments loosen restrictions, it's a, it's a way to start having conversations with your family and friends and doctors about how to do that. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. It tells me two things, really. One is that it's it provides you a, a little bit more of a context in which to take judgments that are still quite uncertain. So I, for instance, last summer went down to visit my mother, who's in her 80s. Uh, we sat outside. Uh, the children came with us. I wouldn't do that now. Having having looked at that calculator, I now realise that she's a perfectly healthy and fit woman, but her age at 83 means that she's vulnerable in a way I just hadn't really appreciated. I knew, I knew it went with age, but I hadn't really understood that. So it's useful as a context for making decisions. But the other thing it tells me is that exactly as you say, that we need just mountains and mountains and mountains of work like this to kind of add some sort of granularity to our sense of where risks lie and, and, and how they lie. And, and it's going to be an ongoing job because this data set is for the wild type COVID-19. It's not the variant that was detected in Brazil or South Africa or Britain. All of those could change the dynamics of some of these lines. So it's a really, really complicated job. And people are going to have to get their head around how to use it. 
how it's not determinant, it's a contextual tool that helps you make judgments that are still have to be hedged around quite a lot. I think in that vein, just to say the context of all this is, again, incidents. And I don't want to sound like a worn out record, but, you know, if you're in a country like Australia, where there are, the incidence is very low, this means one thing. And if you're in a, a country that's having uh, rapidly expanding infections, it means something entirely different in a way, in the way that you interpret that context of like, how much risk am I taking doing this? So we're at a very delicate point on the exit ramp out of the pandemic. As vaccinations spread, it gives governments, it gives individuals, it gives everyone a bit more choice about how to manage the spread of infections. But if we get things wrong, if we loosen things up a bit too quickly, infections could go back out of control. What is clear is that over the next six months or year, the choice about what to do is increasingly going to fall on individuals. And if individuals are going to make true risk assessments about, you know, whether they want to take the risk to do something and possibly get infected by COVID-19, then they're going to need information and things like the risk estimator or guidance from health authorities about what can and can't be done depending on your vaccination status, that that all those things are going to be really important and we should be looking out for them and assessing them um, to help people make better decisions. Now, just before we go, Ed, Natasha, is there anything else you spotted this week that people might have missed? Yeah, well, I was quite struck by some data that came out of the University of Maryland that was looking at, through cell phone data, at how much people were travelling. And it turned out that in February, travel journeys were up more than a mile from people's houses, were up by over 13% compared with a year earlier before people went into lockdown. In other words, you know, when people feel they can start to get free and some of these restrictions are, are lifted... They want to have a good time. They've got errands they want to run. They've got places they want to go to. And and I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Sitting in my spare room for all these months, I can't wait to be able to get out and, and start wandering around too. That makes a lot of sense. And also, Ed, it's good to know that a good time for you is some running some errands. That's what you're keen to do as, far, as soon as you can. That's all. I'll do, at this point, Alec, I'll do anything you ask just to get out. Uh, Natasha, <laughs> uh, anything you spotted this week? Well, I've been watching uh, the discussion about the Tokyo Olympics with interest in Japan. And of course, the story on Japan is they've done absolutely superbly well in suppressing the virus. Uh, And now um, everyone is not really that interested in taking the vaccine and the vaccine rollout is very slow. And uh, the Japanese are are kind of quivering at the idea that they're going to have to allow um, tens of thousands of foreigners in uh, for the Olympics uh, this summer. So... That's going to be a challenge. They've said they may not allow foreigners in, uh, unless they're athletes, of course. Do you think it's going to go ahead? I was talking to a contact in Japan, and she said, basically, the cost of cancelling it is actually quite large because there's a whole bunch of TV rights that have been sold. So the the Japanese are disinclined to cancel it. But that, of course, would seem to be the obvious thing to do. You know, there's a lot of sunk costs involved here, so I suspect that they don't want to. Thanks, Natasha and Ed. Thank you. Thank you, Alok. That's all from us. The show's producer is Duncan Barber. The sound designer is Nico Rofast and the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. 
If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on the jab next week when we'll be speaking to Dr. Anthony Fauci about the race to vaccinate America. Mm-hmm.